Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by longtime Princeton University economist and winner of the 2015 Nobel Prize for Economics, Angus Deaton. He's also the author of the must-read new book, his ninth, if my count is correct, entitled Economics in America, An Immigrant Economist Explores the Land of Inequality. I'm grateful to speak with him about the book, including its reflections over more than a quarter century on the fundamental questions of economics and politics, namely, how do we create a society of broad-based growth and opportunity? Professor Deaton, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Let me start with a question about economics itself. You write that you're sympathetic to the argument that economists were given too much power over the world, particularly over the past 30 years or so, and their blind spots have produced suboptimal outcomes. What's the source of the problem of what you call economism? What an economic way of thinking poorly served policymaking during this period? Economism is not really my term, but um, I think I quote it in, in the book. The, what, my concern is that economics has become very narrow, um, if you like, very myopic. And it's become almost entirely concerned with the allocation of resources. And, you know, that's one of the more famous definitions of economics, that it's the allocation of scarce resources among competing ends. And, you know, it's hard to object to that. You know, we'd all like to see the world be an efficient place. The The problem is we've made that our only goal. And so we've been too keen to subject other important goals to that one. And that leads in two directions. I think one is markets are very good at efficiency. They're not so very good at a lot of other things. And so we've become a little too enamored of the virtues of markets and not sensitive enough to the problems. Um, the other side is, you know, efficiency doesn't really take care of who gets what. Um, it doesn't really focus on anything other than people getting more money. <laughs> and there's lots of other things that are important to people, including particularly their health, for instance but also non-individualistic things, social relationships with other people. Your 2020 book, The Deaths of Despair, authored with your spouse, Anne Case, examined the socioeconomic costs of policy-making choices that had contributed to deindustrialization and job losses in certain regions and communities. I want to ask about those choices, Professor Deaton. What did we get wrong in the post-Cold War era in hindsight? Was it a matter of degree when it came to issues like globalization and free trade, or was the problem more in the main in your eyes? I think it was probably a matter of degree. Um, you know, there's a great deal to be gained from trade. 
there's a great deal to be gained from immigration. And, you know, I'm, <laughs> you know, Canada is a good example of somewhere where you're still very welcoming to immigrants in a way that's really not true here. So it would be insane for me to say, well, we should have had, you know, we shouldn't have had any immigration. Um, but I think immigration has been a problem. I think, you know, as part of it is the politics too. We haven't really listened to working people in America. And they've not had much access to political power. So it's partly the decisions, some of the decisions were wrong, like on going flat out on trade, for example. But also part of the problem was who was making the decisions. So that, you know, a lot of working people didn't have their voices heard. And, you know, a lot of that is to do with the decline in unions, for example. Um, unions used to be a very powerful force in local and national politics, not to mention in people's social life and in making their workplaces um, better. Now, you know, all the unions together in Washington spend less money than Alphabet does. So, you know, that, that balance has got a little out of whack, I think. Your scholarship has sought to extend the tools of economics to issues and questions that aren't necessarily themselves economic per se. The deaths of despair is a good example, but hardly the only one. As an economist and an empiricist, how do you think of the limits of economic thinking? Can economics help us understand or perhaps may in the future be able to help us understand issues like belonging or meaning or status? Maybe put differently, Professor Deaton, how much of the politics of the past several years can be understood as the elevation of preferences and sediments that exist outside of the economics toolkit? And how can economists contribute to our understanding of them? Well, you know, the economics toolkit is pretty broad. And, and you know, some of the things economists are good at is we can count. You know? So even counting the number of the helping count the number of deaths, I mean, other people do that too. But also counting the number of people who are in severe distress of one sort or another. So, you know, I think the tools of economics in terms of using big data, of sort of thinking about the world, I, I don't think there's a real problem there. I, I think it's more which particular tools we've used. And as I said at the beginning, it, it's this too heavy focus on efficiency at the expense of, um, you know, all the other things that matter to people. So it's not like economists are the expert on psychic pain or something, you know, or economists are the expert on cardiovascular disease. We're not. It's just that those things matter to people. And, and we've sort of said, well, we're the kings and queens of this sort of thing. You know, we're the masters of the universe. We know what you should be doing and we're going to tell you. And that's, and you know, sometimes we get it wrong, which is a problem. And secondly, we're not listening to other people who have different views and different values. Yeah, if I can just follow up on that, sir. An example of that economics way of thinking with the emphasis on efficiency may be exemplified by the popular book in the first decade of the 2000s called What's the Matter with Kansas? You know, the basic premise of the book was that a lot of working class people were voting against their economic interests because they were focused on other issues, whether it was their kind of cultural or social preferences. How can economists bring into their analysis these other issues that may themselves not be prone to kind of quantitative analysis? Well, I, I would resist the notion that, um, <laughs> you know, we can bring quantitative analysis and data to bear on almost anything. 
So it's the things, the choice of things we look at rather than. I'm not very fond of this idea that working class voters in America are voting against their interests. You know, I mean, it's that's part of the condescension that I think has been the problem of the educated elite in America who sort of listens to economists and when people say, we don't like that, they say, well, that's because you're not properly educated or you're voting against your own self-interest. And we're not counting the destruction of communities or the fact that it's very hard for people to move, you know, or the fact that there used to be a union and now there isn't a union. I mean, all of these things really matter to people. And when we say they're voting against their interests, you know, we have to take those things into account. Um, and besides, I, I saw enough of a libertarian to believe that I'm the best judge of who my own interests are. And I don't want someone condescending to me just because they think they're smarter than me or they think, you know, they they have a PhD that I don't have or something. The book describes the brutal dichotomy of American life. The country is dynamic, rich, and typifies the notion of almost limitless possibilities, yet it's also uniquely unequal in various dimensions. Is there an implicit trade-off here, Professor Deaton? Can you have American-style dynamism and innovation with European social democracy? And if not, what's the right way to think about the trade-offs? Well, I think that trade-off does exist. I, I have no doubt about that. So that, you know, if you, and, and I'm enough of a conservative to say, well, you know, if you coddle people, they, they're not going to go out and, um, you know, break everything and change the world. Um, I think it's also true that Americans have somewhat different preferences over that trade-off than Europeans or perhaps even Canadians do. I mean, America was formed by people who were trying to escape from governments. You know, they wanted to be left alone and they didn't want to be coddled if being coddled meant you had to hew to some religious or political, you had to listen to the king or listen to the church. So I think that's right. But uh, I think what has bothered me in recent years is I don't think America has lost the land of opportunity thing, that these immense opportunities are really there. And as, you know, when British people were arguing for Brexit, one of the arguments was, you know, America has Amazon, Amazon and Google and Apple. And, you know, they're none of those, they're none of those in Europe. And that's because we're stultifying things. But I think we've gone too far. So that what's happened is, you know, the high trapeze is super high and spectacular and all the rest of it, but the bodies are piling up underneath. And that might be because we need a better safety net, or I think, you know, working people need more power to construct the world that they want to live in and not just the world that rich capitalists live in. You write about the need for refocus, not merely on post-market redistribution, but on policies that you describe as pre-distribution, including but hardly limited to industrial policy and regional development policies. This more active vision for the state to address concerns about market outcomes ostensibly requires an adept and capable state. Do you think the U.S. government or other governments are capable of bringing these complex policies into expression? And if not, what's standing in their way and what can be done to boost their state capacity? Well, I, I think you knew the answer to that question before you asked it, you know, which is that right now, given the chaos that seems to be going on in Washington, um, there's some question. But, you know, 
that chaos, I think, is partly a consequence of the things we've been talking about. I mean, there are a lot of very, very angry people in America. And maybe, you know, they're angry enough with the people who've been ruling them for the last 20 or 30 years that they're prepared to break things. And that's going to make everything difficult. But there's a positive side, too, which is I'm very much in favor of the sort of thing that the Biden administration is trying to do. And, you know, this is something, this tug of war on both sides has been part of American history, at least since the beginning of the 19th century. And, you know, there was a long period in the 20s and 30s when, you know, unions were rising, when working class people had a lot of power. And then that's been beaten back again, um, you know, between the mid-century and now. And we're sort of back to where we were in 1890 again. So I don't think capability is the problem. I mean, I know a lot of civil servants. I know they're smart people. They're very dedicated people. Um, but we got to sort the politics out. And, you know, if if we don't fix things before people get so angry, they'll be uncontrollable, then we're going to have a serious problem. I don't think it's crazy for people to be worrying about civil war, for example. I don't think that's going to happen. But, you know, you can see the beginnings of it. If I may follow up on your answer, notwithstanding the overwhelming evidence of polarization and dysfunction in Washington, an emerging source of bipartisan support is a more hawkish line vis-a-vis China. What do you think about policy trends in Washington as it relates to China? Is there a risk that the U.S. government effectively overcorrects in terms of its thinking on its economic and geopolitical relationship with China? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a risk there. And it's clear that bad things have happened in China. So that the sort of wisdom of government and growth and the deal that seemed to be existing under Deng, Chang, under Deng and his immediate successors has turned into something much more like a dictatorship um, under Xi. And that is going to make things much, much harder to handle. Um, also, as growth falters in China and you know, I could give you a hundred reasons why that might be happening, and there's too many reasons. Um, that it's clear that that's a difficult thing for any politician to handle, and it, it certainly makes for a very dangerous situation. So, yes, I'm very worried. Um, I think once again, in the last few months, the Biden administration has been trying to cool things and cool the saber rattling you know, by sending Janet Yellen and other senior cabinet officials um, to China to talk. And so I think that's exactly the right thing to do. At the same time, I don't think we can go on with the hyper-globalization that we had before. And clearly, you know, I mean, one very simple fact that I don't think people talk about enough, Chinese China has one of the lowest savings rates in the world. I mean, about 20 or 30% of GDP. If they had a higher savings rate, all those goods that were be, you could have had the same growth, but those goods would have been consumed in China instead of putting Americans or Canadians or Europeans out of work. And I think that would have made for a much easier world. And so that's the sort of thing we've been talking about, you know, not um, bang, bang solutions, you know, one end or the other, but, but let's go a little slower on this. But yes, I think we have to have some sort of reconsideration of the, what was happening in China. 
Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday a compilation of our best writing from the previous week. Again, free for you right now at www.thehub.ca. Canadian economist David Green has been a leading scholar on the subject of job polarization, which in broad terms describes how the transition from a goods-producing economy to a knowledge-based one has contributed to a labor market in which mid-skilled employment has fallen relative to low and high-skilled employment. Let me ask you a two-part question first. How much of the rise of inequality in your mind has been driven by this relative decline in mid-skilled jobs? And second, what can public policy do to cultivate a new generation of middle-class job opportunities? Okay, the two parts. So, I mean, your first part of the question is sort of contradictory because, you know, the polarization is actually pulling up wages at the bottom because the people at the bottom, what you've got is this hollowing out situation in which people at the very top, like you and me, are doing great. And people at the bottom who look after people in old folks' homes or something, you know, where you can't substitute with any sort of machinery, are, are sort of in a hard, hard time. So that's held up wages at the bottom. And which measure of inequality you look at really matters. So, you know, the work that Anne and I have been, and Case and I have been doing is much more concerned with inequality across education than it is inequality just in wages, for instance. So that's one thing. Um, the other thing is obviously you, you really worry about that middle getting worse. <laughs> you know, the, the sort of high end jobs, um, in the middle, if you like, which are sort of routine could be pretty well taken care of by artificial intelligence or something. So I'm no expert on that, but obviously like everybody else, you know, I worry about that, but that's not the sort of inequality I worry about most. The sort of inequality I worry about is inequality of access to politics, inequality of voice, um, inequality of power. And of course, in America, there's always racial inequality. And I don't talk so much about that in the book, but a little bit. But that's not as if that's gone away. And I think somehow those inequalities, the inequalities of being a full citizenship in your own country are more important than monetary inequalities, which are worrying enough. I want to ask you about the extent to which America's more unconstrained version of capitalism is an enabler of other jurisdictions to adopt more mixed model policies. Take drug pricing, for instance. U.S. drug prices are extraordinarily high, as you outline in the book, but that presumably involves some degree of cross-subsidization for countries such as Canada that impose different forms of central price-setting mechanisms. Let me ask you the question this way, Professor Deaton. If the U.S. shifted its economic model to more reflect the Anglo-American norm, what do you think the consequences might be for the rest of us? Well, are you talking about drugs or are you talking about more widely? More widely. Yeah, because on drugs, I mean, that's the argument that drug companies make all the time, that, you know, we're cross-subsidizing, and if we stop those countries, and it's to try to enlist other countries in battering the Biden administration and sort of price control, right, which has been quite successful. There are a lot of op-eds in British newspapers saying, please, please, you know, don't control prices because we'll suffer. 
factually, I have no idea whether that's true. I mean, part of the argument has always been any increase in prices is okay. So, the, you know, even if there is a trade-off there, there's got to be some limit, right? And when you hear the drug companies pushing it, they're often saying, well, you know, any attempt to bring prices down will be bad. Well, <laughs> you know, there's got to be some point at which prices are too high. I don't know if, if America is subsidizing the rest of the world in other things. I mean, you have like, you know, America has Google, America has YouTube, America has, you know, Instagram or Facebook or whatever it is, and we're subsidizing the rest of the world. Maybe. I'm not sure. So just to follow up, if you take yourself, for instance, in effect, Scotland exported inequality to the United States by virtue of a dynamic person like yourself going to the United States because of the extraordinary opportunities there. So if if the American economy changed to more reflect the mixed model set of implicit trade-offs that other jurisdictions have, would it have, at least in theory, changes in our own kind of economic and social dynamics? I'm sure, but you know, there's a long way before the U.S. turns into Sweden or turns into Britain. And as for the Scots, you know, we've always been a sort of fairly adventurous people. <laughs> um, good and bad. I mean, you know, the, the two Scots doctors, or one of them was a doctor who caused the opium war. I mean, you know, they're, they're really Scottish villains, but we've always been keen to wander around the world and cause trouble. I have to ask you about healthcare. You write in the book about your experience getting a hip replacement in, in 2006. What did the experience in your mind reinforce about the limits of market thinking when it comes to healthcare? Is there a way to solve for price signals and information better than how the American system currently functions? There's got to be. <laughs> I mean, the American system. I mean, the, the, the rhetoric in which people, you know, who are in favor of markets say, you know, the American, <laughs> the American healthcare system is a free market system. I mean, that's nonsense. I mean, the idea that you know, these prices are set by regulated bodies, by hospitals, you know, they're, it's an enormous, um, you know, Anne and I in our book talk about, you know, upward redistribution by predatory companies. And healthcare would be a fantastic example of that. And, you know, there are six healthcare lobbyists, that's six, sorry, healthcare lobbyists in Washington um, for every member of Congress and Senate put together. So, you know, it's an extraction machine. And of course, the libertarians and other people, and you know, the people who believe in free markets love to say, you know, if you try to interfere with the free market, you're just going to cause terrible things to happen. Well, the terrible things are happening already. And what's more is this libertarian rhetoric is in these circumstances, just a license to go on plundering. So, I mean, I mean, I think there are many, many solutions. If you look across Europe and Canada, there, you know, some of them, the state runs the healthcare system, other them it's private. Some of them have insurance companies, some of them don't. There are lots of ways of doing it. So there's not one model. Almost any of those would be better than what we have here. And a lot of them could maintain much more market incentives. I mean, for instance, um, Vic Fuchs, a great health economist who died a couple of weeks ago, you know, had a splendid plan um, for vouchers, which would help cost control and do all sorts of other things. 
But meanwhile, we're left with this thing that costs, you know, 50% more as a share of GDP than any other country in the world. So it's bankrupting us, and literally so. I mean, we'll never solve the federal deficit problem unless we bring healthcare costs under control. One of the limits on Canada's single-payer model, which extends 100% first-dollar coverage for hospitals and physician services, is that it cannot be extended across the full range of healthcare services because the costs would be astronomical. How should we think, therefore, in your mind, Professor Deaton, about the relative roles of public and private financing when it comes to healthcare? Should it be means-tested? Should there be co-payments in general or, or in certain areas? How do you solve for the problems that you've identified in your research? Yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not a health systems guy, and I haven't spent a lot of my time thinking about those sort of issues. So I, I'm not the best person to ask. And I will just repeat what I said the last time, really. There are lots of examples out there to draw on. But sure, there's no country in the world could provide everything for free, um, including elder care, for example, which is very, very expensive indeed, and which you're never going to be able to do so, but there's a long way between free and what we have in America. I want to return to inequality. Although anti-Americanism runs deep in Canadian society, I, I should say I don't have such a bone in, in my body. My dad's an American file, and I grew up with a great appreciation of American culture and society. I've been living in New York for the past several years with my family, and that hasn't changed much. A big exception, though, is the inherent inequality with regards to maternity leave. My wife works for a large law firm and received five months leave. Never mind that in Canada, the norm is 12 months. But for a lot of working class American women, five months would be extraordinary. There must be a generational consequence of that early stage inequality. Talk about what it means for child development and long-running quality. What's standing in the way, Professor Deaton, of a basic national maternity leave? I don't know. And again, that's the details of that I haven't thought about. But um, and I don't think it's just um, working class people. I mean, I think if you were a doctor in America working in a hospital, you don't get much in the way of maternity leave where you have to take it off and pay for it yourself. Um, so... Americans have always, this takes us back to something we were talking about before. I think there is a difference in terms of preferences here. So one of the most extraordinary things is Americans don't take any vacation of any sort. <laughs> you know, so the French always go to Deauville or wherever it is for, you know, five weeks in the summer. Um, whereas the Americans get five days if they're lucky. And think about that. And if you add that up in some appropriate way. You know, France is probably actually richer than America if you do it that way. But I think Americans, by and large, seem to want that. So that it's not clear that given their druthers, they would take it out more in leisure. That said, you know, we've also got this situation where we don't have any unions left anymore. Um, and um, so who knows what people would really want if left to themselves. And, you know the unions maybe are making a comeback. Um, the, I've been quite encouraged by what's happened with the UAW. Um, the UAW had been a sort of non-functioning organization for a very long time. And so I think a lot of what's happened this time is the new union president reestablishing his bona fides with his members who'd learned to distrust the union. And that's a very healthy thing. Because one of the reasons that unions decline is that um, they're not delivering much for their members. 
So if they don't deliver, people drift away from them. Also, that's another feature of globalization that we haven't talked about, that there's this sense it's much easier for manufacturers or employers in general to replace workers if you know you can replace it with someone in India. Let me put a penultimate question to you. What makes you optimistic and pessimistic about American society? I'm I'm optimistic because of this opportunity thing. I think people really are very hardworking. Um, they really believe in work. Um, they believe in this opportunity. And even if it's not really true, that's a great motivating force um, for America. It's always welcomed immigrants. It's welcomed people like me, people like you, you just told me. Um, you know, and I think that is um, one of the strengths. But the weakness is just this inequality. And on that, the first I would, would be the inequality of power, just the sense that not everyone's a full member of, of American society. And that terrifies me because, you know, I'm part of the educated elite, and I'm not very keen for those people to come to come at me with pitchforks, as it were. Final question. When we look back on the 21st century, will it be an American century? And what should Americans be doing to ensure that it is? I don't really care about that. And I don't know why Americans should care about that either. And it depends which metric you you do. I mean, you know, I think maybe one of the most fantastic things of the 20th century is just this, you know, until bad things happened recently and only in a few countries, incredible explosion of life expectancy. I mean, there's no country in the world where infant mortality rates are not lower now than they were in 1950, for example. You know, if you were looking at this from outer space, you've got to say, holy mackerel, how did they do that? You know, and after centuries and centuries and centuries where that was really not the case. Um, so that, that really is an incredible achievement. But then, of course, they would look back over the 20th century and look at the horrible things that happened, the Holocaust, the Great Leap Forward, you know, uh, two world wars and so on. So, you know, they would be saying, when will these people get their act together? And, you know, America is the richest country in the world um, and has some responsibility. But I don't think I would single out American achievements as being the most notable thing of the century, great though they are. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, sir. The book is Economics in America, An Immigrant Economist Explores the Land of Inequality. Angus Deaton, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>